If you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. At the very beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it gives us really the uh, overriding theme of the whole book. Acts 1.8, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then Jesus commissioned them and said that when you receive this gift, this power, this enablement of the Holy Spirit, then you will be my witnesses. You will witness for me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. That's the theme of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is about the receiving of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit enabling the apostles and his church, and then the gospel going out from Jerusalem to the nations. At Acts chapter 6, we begin to see a turn in the book of Acts from purely focusing on Jerusalem and the events surrounding the day of Pentecost and, and shortly thereafter And beginning in Acts chapter 6, we start to see little movements toward the gospel going outward beyond Jerusalem. But before it can do that, the, the church has to have the right foundation, the right grounding, the right structure, the right the right pieces in place so that the gospel can advance. And what we see in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 is a situation that came up in the early church in Jerusalem that required a solution. And that solution helped provide some structure for the church, which then enabled the gospel to go out more freely and more widely, and the church began to grow even more as a result of this solution that they came up with to this problem in Acts chapter 6. And so I want us to look at this passage together and see what it meant for the early church and the establishment of the first church in Jerusalem. But also I want to see what it has to say to us as a church today here at Eastside in 2022. And so let's look at this passage together, serving for the gospel. In Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. and They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert, to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. 
So the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of the book of Acts. We thank you for the clarity that it gives us with regard to the mission of your church. We thank you for this story that we have an opportunity to look at this morning that teaches us about the the way that the early church handled uh, its problems, the way that it came up with solutions, and how those solutions and the structure that they came up with served to advance the mission that you had entrusted the church with. Lord, help us to learn what you have for us today from this passage. May your spirit speak to us through this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the opening of this story that Luke is relating to us in Acts chapter 6, it says that there was kind of a division that arose between two groups within the church. There was a group of what he calls Hellenistic Jews and a group that he calls Hebraic Jews. And there seems to have uh, come up a division between this group because some of their widows were not being taken care of equally. And so this caused some, some issues, some problems to arise within the church. And I want us to just stop and focus for a moment on who these people were, who these two groups were, because I think it's important to understand why this was so important in this, at this moment in the church and what it communicated then about the gospel to the world around them. There have been many, many explanations about who these two groups were. And, and some of those explanations have problems associated with them that, that aren't easily resolved. Some have suggested that these Hellenistic Jews were proselytes. That is, they were Gentiles who then became Jews in essence by conversion, by becoming proselytes. Well, the problem with that is that normally proselytes were not specifically called Jews. And also, if these were proselytes, we would think that Luke would tell us that because later in the passage, he does specifically tell us that one of the seven men that they chose for this ministry of service was a proselyte and became uh, a a member of Judaism through conversion. And so the idea that these were originally Gentiles or Greeks who then became a part of Judaism through conversion, probably not likely. Uh, Some have also suggested that that these were um, Jews from the diaspora. That is, Jews who didn't originally live in Jerusalem, but who had come from far and wide. And that has more to lend itself to, I think, a better solution to who this group was. But I think we have to get even deeper than that. Because even within Jerusalem, even within the city of Jerusalem, you had different views about the the Jewish relationship to Greco-Roman culture. And so you had groups within the Jewish faith, within the Jewish people, who were more opposed to any of the aspects of Greco-Roman culture. 
And so they would be, they were, would be what you might call more uh, Hebraic traditionalists and rejecting most, if not all, of the Greek and Roman culture. But then you had other Jews who were more open to that. In fact, there was a party of Jews within Jerusalem called the Hellenists that were more open to some of the aspects of Greco-Roman culture. Now, when I say that, I'm not implying in any way that they were open to the idolatry or the paganism of Greco-Roman culture, but just in other social things, other cultural things, they may have been more open to some of those Hellenistic ideas and practices. And so even within Jerusalem itself, apart from Christianity, there was a division about these ideas. Then you have these people becoming Christians, believing in Jesus and coming into the early church. And so what you have is you have a difference of ideas, but also a difference of culture. And so you have some of these Jews who may have come from other places in the Roman Empire that weren't born in Israel, weren't born in Jerusalem, but have been Jews their entire life. They're natively born Jews, but they come from, say, Ephesus or Corinth or Thessalonica, other places in the Roman Empire. And now they're here in Jerusalem as a part of this early church. And we know that that could be a very distinct possibility because of the day of Pentecost. Because when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, there were people there from all over the place who had come to Jerusalem specifically for that festival. And when the Holy Spirit fell on the early disciples, they began to speak in tongues and speak in known languages. And the people who were there from other places said, we are hearing these people speak the wonderful things of God in our own language. So there were people from other places, other cultures, but who were still Jews now in Jerusalem. And then you had the native born Jews, the native Israel born Jews, who grew up speaking Aramaic and learning Hebrew as well, and were not necessarily Greek-speaking or Greek-cultured Jews, but now you have them all together in one body of believers. And what this passage is teaching us from the very beginning in verse 1 is that the church needs to be unified as one body for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes when we read this passage, we just think about, well, making sure needs are met. And that's one aspect of it. But at the very beginning of it, the core of it is about the church being unified as one body. And so the idea here is regardless of what your background is, what your cultural background is, what your birthplace was, what uh, ethnicity you were or uh, what language you spoke or what your specific regional cultural practices were. None of that matters because now the church is to be one body of Christ. This is the idea that, that Jews and Gentiles would come together as one body is, is something that the early church wrestled with from the very beginning. And this is the very first hint of it in the book of Acts. And that's why I said at the beginning of this message that this is really the first turn in the book of Acts toward seeing a wider uh, scope of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. 
Because even though this is happening in Jerusalem with the early Jerusalem church, it involves people from other areas who have come to Jerusalem. And now they're wrestling with how do we become one body in Christ? And this was something that that the early church had to wrestle with. What do we do with Samaritans who now come into the faith? What do we do with uh, Hellenistic Jews who come into the faith? What do we do with full Gentiles who come into the faith as the body of Christ? How do we become one body with all these different groups of people? And the early church, its focus was to become one, to become unified. And they worked through these issues and they came up with solutions so that the church could be one body in Christ. You read Ephesians chapter four. And Paul's main emphasis in that entire chapter in Ephesians four is on the church becoming one unified body in Christ. He says, we have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one baptism. And so whether you're a Jew or a Gentile Samaritan or a Hellenistic Jew, wherever you have come from, whatever culture you have derived from, we are now one in Christ. That is the ideal of the New Testament church. Not that there would be, uh, you know, Chinese churches and Korean churches and Russian churches or white churches and black churches, but that there would just be the church. And we see this exemplified in perfection on the last day in the glory exemplified in Rome in Revelation chapter five, when it says that around the throne were people from every language and tribe and culture on earth, all standing around the throne together saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That is the ideal of the New Testament church. And from the very beginning, the the apostles and the early leaders of the church were seeking to do just that, to integrate people from different backgrounds and cultures into one body of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Because here's the thing, the gospel is not for one people group. The gospel is not for one culture. The gospel is not for one race. I remember having a conversation. This was probably, wow, 15, 18 years ago uh, when I was pastoring a church in Tuscaloosa and we had become involved with um, a uh, international outreach um, through the University of Alabama. And and so we were kind of paired up with um, people, uh, some young men from China. And I remember having a conversation with them and in the conversation, it came about that I let them know that I was a Christian. And their first response to that was, oh, that, yes, that's popular here in America. That's an American thing. And, and my response to that immediately was, Christianity is not an American thing. There are Christians in China. There are Christians in Russia. There are Christians in Africa. Christianity is not a one culture thing. Christianity is not about from being from one culture or one race or one nation. The gospel message is for the world. That's the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. And so the early church is seeking to become that. Needs to be one unified body for the sake of the gospel. The other thing that we see in this passage is that the church needs helpers. The church needs servants to take care of needs that may arise within the body. 
And the thing that brought this about was there was a, a, a difference in the distribution of daily food for the widows of these two different groups. And so the church needed to be, make sure that the needs were being met. Now, just think about the situation of these widows in the first century. Not like today at all. They didn't have Social Security. They didn't have Medicare. They didn't have retirement or pension plans. Uh, To be a widow in ancient society was a very vulnerable, financially precarious position to be in. You depended on family. And if you didn't have family, then Jews would go to the temple and seek help. But here the church is taking on that role for the sake of those widows that don't have family help, family support. And so they are making sure that their needs are met. But the problem is, and this is a good problem to have, is that the church was growing. The church was growing, the church was increasing, and so the need became more than the apostles could handle. It was taking away from their other responsibilities of preaching the word. And so they said, we need a solution to this problem. And the solution was to appoint servants, helpers to take care of needs within the body. And most interpreters, most theologians look to this passage as the origination of the New Testament church deacon. Because the word deacon or Greek word diakonos literally means a servant. A servant, a helper, someone who gives help, assistance, someone who serves others. And that was the original role here for these seven men that were chosen and appointed is they served others. They made sure that the needs of the widows in the early church were met. Now, here's the thing. That's not the only role that servants or deacons can have is just making sure that physical financial needs are met. Traditionally in church history, that has been one of the purposes of deacons is to, is for benevolence ministry, to make sure that needs within the body of Christ are met. But I think this is just one example of the kinds of things that servants can do within the church. Uh, any, anything that, that requires time and effort and labor and skill, any of that could fall under the auspices of the servants of the church. So there needs to be some structure, some help, some people appointed for specific tasks that need to be taken care of within the body of Christ. And this passage says that those servants need to be people of faith and godly character. The servants that are chosen to take care of the needs within the church need to be people of faith and godly character. Verse 3 says, Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And so specifically, the idea here is, is these are going to be servants taking care of specific realms of responsibility and duty within the church, but they're also going to be examples to the flock. And so as examples to the flock, they need to have a certain measure of Christian maturity and Christian character. We read in 1 Timothy 3, 
where Paul spells out for Timothy the qualifications for pastors and for deacons, for servants. And he lists several things there about who deacons should be, and they all revolve around the, the idea of godly character. They need to be pa- people who are uh, patient, who are kind, who are uh, faithful, honest. These are people who are, are the ones who should be appointed to this role. And so there needs to be a certain level of Christian maturity so that they can be examples to the flock and so that they can be entrusted with this responsibility, knowing that they can take care of it in a godly and Christian way. What's the purpose of appointing these servants? The purpose of it is so that the word of God can go out more fully and more broadly. The church needs these servants so the pastors and teachers of the church can be more fully devoted to the preaching of the word and prayer. That's what this passage says. It says the 12 gathered together in verse two, they gathered the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In other words, the, the apostles and then into the next generation of the church, the elders, the pastors of the church, their role was specifically the preaching of the word and prayer, ministering the word. And if their time was more devoted to these physical things, it would be taking away from their role as teaching and ministering the word. In verse four, they, they mentioned that again. They say, we will turn this responsibility over to them and then we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. In other words, within the church, the early church, they set up a division of responsibilities. The deacons primarily, their role, the servants in the church, their role is to take care of physical needs, whatever they may be, that may arise within the church so that the elders, pastors, in this case, the apostles, so that they can devote themselves to the ministry of teaching, of discipling, of ministering the word of God in prayer. There was a division of responsibility. Now, that's not to say that a deacon can't also be a teacher and a minister of the word. We're going to see Philip one of the men that they appointed as one of these servants, we're going to see Philip here very, very, or very soon, as well as Stephen involved in giving gospel ministry. So it's not that deacons can't do ministry of the word and that pastors can't take care of physical needs. It's more a matter of emphasis. It's a more a matter of what is their primary role and responsibility. And the primary role and responsibility of the pastors and teachers is ministering the word. So they chose servants so that they could devote themselves to that ministry of the word. Now, I want you to see the result of this. Here's the result. Verse five says that the church agreed to this proposal. So here are the men that they chose. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Farmanus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. Now, 
One of the, the commentaries generally point out that all of these names are Greek names. These are all Greek names. So, um, you know, Joshua, Daniel, Simon, these are Hebrew names. But Stephen, Philip, Nicanor, these are Greek names. Why would they choose men who, who had Greek names for this role? Well, who is being overlooked in the ministry? The Hellenistic widows. The Hellenistic Jewish widows. And so they chose men who specifically would make sure that that group's needs were taken care of for the sake of the unity of the body. And so they presented these men to the apostles and they prayed on them and they laid their hands on them, which is kind of a symbol of of ordination, of setting them apart for this role of service within the church. But now look at the result, verse 7. Because this is why this story is in the book of Acts. This story is in the book of Acts, not just to tell us about seven men who made sure that widows' needs were taken care of. That's not why this story is in the book of Acts. This story is in the book of Acts because of what happened as a result of the church doing this. Look at verse 7. So the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I just want to focus on that last phrase for a moment, that last statement. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Who are these priests? These are Jewish priests, right? And where do the Jewish priests minister? They ministered in the temple. Where would widows go for help if they didn't have family to take care of them? They would go to the temple. And what these priests who had previously been in charge of helping widows who came to them for need, what these priests in Jerusalem are seeing is they're seeing how well the church of the Lord Jesus is loving one another, how well the church is unified as one body of Christ. Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews coming together as one to make sure that the needs are met. And these priests are seeing how good of a job the church of Jesus is at taking care of these widows, so much so that it becomes a draw to the gospel for them. It says a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Here's why I think this is important. When the early church is unified, when the early church took care of the needs of its people, when the early church prioritized and emphasized the ministry of the apostles and the preaching of the gospel, the gospel grew rapidly. 
there were amazing results when the church was unified, when the church loved one another and took care of its needs, and when the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God, was emphasized. The church grew. And I think that is the lesson for us, is that the, the core element of success for the church of Jesus Christ is described in this passage. Unity, serving and loving one another, and all of this so that the gospel preaching, the gospel message can be made a priority. And the result then is growth. The world around them saw true Christianity. Jerusalem saw true Christianity. They saw love for one another. They saw unity. People that normally didn't get along. Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews, people that normally didn't get along. Now they're one and they're unified in purpose. And it became, the world saw that. Those who were previously unbelievers saw that. They saw the unity of the church. They saw the love that the church had for one another. And they heard the preaching of the gospel because the apostles then could devote themselves more to it. And they didn't have to trouble themselves with these other things. They could devote themselves to their primary calling, which was to be witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And when the church did that, it prioritized the gospel by making the the structure of the church serve that gospel, then the gospel advanced and there were tremendous results. And so when the church is unified as one body and its needs are met and the preaching of the word and prayer are prioritized, the gospel advances. That's what this passage is all about. When the church is unified and the church loves one another and the preaching of the word of God and prayer is emphasized, the gospel advances. And the church of Jesus Christ grows. And so may we think as a church, individually as well as a congregation, think about how we can more prioritize the advancement of the gospel in the way that we're unified and in the way that we take care of the needs within the church so that the gospel of Jesus can become a priority, so that the gospel can advance and the church can grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. So may God give us wisdom as we think about ways that we can make the gospel a greater priority within our congregation. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. We thank you for this powerful story from the early church that exemplifies how the church can be one, can be unified as one body. How this early church provided us with an example of how we as the body of Christ can love one another and take care of the needs of one another. Thank you that this story showed us the priority 
that the gospel should be within our body as the church. Father, may you be pleased through the preaching of the gospel, through our individual witness to our friends and neighbors and co-workers, through this body of believers that you have gathered here, may you be pleased to advance your gospel and to grow your church. May we be used as your servants, Lord, in that mission. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.